Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Welcome to Breaking Banks. I'm your host, Brett King. We are the number one fintech radio show globally, 180 countries with uh, six and a half million unique listeners. Great to have you back. I hope you enjoyed our uh, special ECMY episode uh, from China. If you haven't checked it out, please check it out. It's a phenomenal episode. I learned heaps out of the process as well. Um, But we are going to return back to Asia. To some extent, we call it Asia, maybe Australasia. We're going to go down under my origins back to Australia. And this week, we're going to be talking about uh, fintech in Australia and also uh, some of the mechanisms in Australia for encouraging fintech and uh, other investment in technologies and industry in the space. So we have three uh, phenomenal guests joining us uh, from around the globe today. Simone DeSetta, she's the CEO of InsureTech Australia. She brings a great depth of knowledge of the Australian global fintech and InsureTech scene. Welcome, Simone. Thanks, Brett. Glad to be here. No problem. Also joining us from Sydney is Ben Smith. He's a general manager for Rails Bank. He's the interim CEO for APAC, uh, based in Sydney, but covers out their regional business out of uh, Singapore. Uh, prior to joining Rails Bank, Ben was head of sales for World First, an ant group company, and uh, worked with a host of other well-known payment companies. Ben, welcome to Breaking Banks. Thank you for the warm intro. It's great to be here. So part of the focus of this show today, apart from obviously talking about the, the work you guys are doing, and we've had Railsbank on the show recently, but is your entrance into the Australian market for, you know, the Australian fintech and insurtech market doesn't get a whole lot of uh, coverage offshore. But instrumental to that is that you've got government organizations like the Australian Trade and Investment Commission, also known as Austrade, working to promote Australia as a destination. You know, first of all, you know, going to you, Ben, why did Rails Bank, you know, you, you already had the regional headquarters in Singapore. Why was it important for you guys to get into the Australian market? Yeah, good question. But there's probably a few reasons that we can talk to. Um, I think one of the interesting things about APAC as a region is it's probably pretty fragmented. The, there's a number of very different uh, cultures and countries across the region. And Singapore was seen as a, as a wonderful stepping stone for us into some of those Southeast Asian countries. Uh, the great thing about Australia for us is that uh, it holds a lot more similarities to our home countries and the region of the UK and Europe. Um, and so everything that we've been doing and building over the last five or six years over in Europe uh, has a, a lot of relevance to Australia. So there's a lot of similarities um, between the two regions and, and it's a natural place for companies in the UK and Europe to want to step into if they're looking to get into APAC as well. Uh, so we see it as a as a as a, as a really pivotal uh, move for us to come into this region to help the customers that we already have on board in the UK and Europe come into this region for a, for a much more similar experience. But when you look at the Australian market itself, it's uh, it's it's not a huge uh, market by demographics, but it's significant enough to be able to test and innovate. So there's a, a significant 
uh, amount of innovation going on in this country. Uh, the population is digitally savvy. Uh, technology is broadly used as a, a mature and healthy fintech and finance system. Uh, and there's a, a lot of work by the government to help uh, increase that innovation in the fintech space. So all of those things added up to a, a, a natural fit for us. And it's been great in the first 12 months that we've been here. Are you originally from the UK? Uh, yes, you've spotted the accent, huh? So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, you guys have partnered with Vault, right? So that's Steve Weston's uh, startup down there, a challenger bank, or Westie, as he's known in, in Australia. Um, tell me about the work you guys have been doing with uh, one of Australia's first neo banks. Yeah, sure. I was, I was actually uh, chatting with Westie yesterday. So uh, uh, we've got a very close and, and, uh, and successful partnership with them so far. So I think if you uh, if you look at what Vault have tried to do to create, well, they were the first neobank in Australia, so they're really setting out to challenge the uh, the banking system here uh, with a digital first model. Again, that's another thing that we uh, push around the world. Um, and what that partnership with Vault enables us to do is to is to quickly partner with them to be able to take some of the banking capabilities that we embed into our tech. Uh, to take those to our customers. And there's just a lot of synergies between what they've developed, what they're doing, and then how we can help take that to market for our customers. Excellent. I think, um, you know, one of the key elements here, like culturally, I think there's obviously a lot of similarities, but there's been a fair bit of uh, work put into the regulatory environment being based partially in the the US now, um, you know, over the last, you know, 11, 12 years. Um, you know, the U.S. has trailed a, a lot of the Asian markets in respect to sort of fintech regulation. We do not have a fintech charter in the United States. Um, Australia does, of course, have a, a fintech, um, you know, a digital banking charter capability there. So, um, you know, there, there's some similarities there with the, the U.K. market. Um, Simone, in particular, we see a lot of this, uh, a, a lot of that similarity uh, being sort of instantiated through the UK-Australian fintech bridge. This was signed into law. It's government-to-government agreement was signed into law in March 2018, or it's just basically a bilateral agreement. Um, Can you tell us about how that has worked uh, broadly? Yeah, we've found um, for a number of our members that's been a real positive, um, particularly for insurtechs, where there's a real strong focus on the UK being uh, key expansion insurance is Uh, London is kind of the home of insurance. Um, So this UK Australia FinTech Bridge has been a real way for some of our members to uh, expand and really made that process um, much easier and more straightforward um, and really been able to, um, we have a number of members who are now in both locations. So it would be our probably top location. And for Australian insurtechs, um, because of the size of the market, they do need to kind of scale globally fairly early in their journey. And you know, we've found that through these initiatives and Austrade and, and some of the other grants, it's it's really um, smoothed that process a lot. So at, at this point, we'd like to invite Christy Downs. She's the CEO and co-founder of Handy to uh, the Breaking Banks show. Christy, welcome to Breaking Banks. Thank you so much, Brad. Tell me a little bit about Handy and, and uh, what you guys are doing. Yeah, sure. So uh, Handy specialises in small property claims. So we connect insurance companies and their homeowners directly to a network of local contractors to fast track and streamline small property claims. Um, It came about because um, my co-founder, she ran motor and property claims, Catherine Wood, for QBE for eight years, and then my background's in construction. 
So I was 10 years an owner and director of a construction company and Catherine was my client and she had this problem with small claims. And the industry traditionally has used big suppliers and I was like, these small claims need to get to local contractors. And we created technology to enable that for the industry. Great. So uh, um, you started off in Australia, I'm guessing in Queensland or where were you guys based? Uh, we're from Melbourne, actually. Are you from Melbourne? Yeah, Melbourne Sorry. girl, yeah. <laughs> um, well, you know, I just thought QVE. But, um, so, um, yeah, where in Melbourne are you from? Um, I actually grew up in the eastern suburbs, so in Mitcham. I'm a Berwick boy. Canterbury. Oh, there you very go. good, very good. Went to Melbourne High, actually, but that's a long time ago. Awesome. Um, well, uh, so then, um, you know, describe the process of you guys, you know, because now you're in the States. Describe the process of, you know, how you you, you started Handy and then, uh, you know, what's now um, taking you globally. Yeah, thanks, Brett. So, look, um, we shared the dream with some key insurance companies in Australia initially who went, yes, please, we'd love this. So Allianz Insurance was our first client we went live with. Um, and after about 12 months and success in Australia, we were approached by Hartford InsurTech Hub, so an accelerator in the U.S., there were a number of insurance companies that sponsored that, Travelers, USAA, and um, we discovered that the same problem existed in the US. And so that's when through Austrade, so we obtained an acceleration, a commercialization grant through Austrade, um, and we were able to, you know, launch our business in the US. We secured our first client being Hippo Insurance um, and launched with them in November of 2019. Uh, and then we were a part of the landing pad in San Francisco. Well, I say that, and we were two weeks in and COVID happened. And so right. actually did the rest of um, landing pad virtually. But, yeah, certainly the Austrade crew were great support as we were building our business during the pandemic, you know. And what's the business look like in Australia now, now that you're um, – how, how long have you been running the business in Australia? So in Australia it's just over three years. Um, and we are working with three of the top five insurance companies and we provide a national service. So our contractors are nationally in Australia. So um, i sure you'd be aware of the recent catastrophe events there. We've helped out a lot of customers and onboarded a lot of contractors um, in that yeah. event. Um, and then here in the United States more recently, we are now in 12 states in the U.S., um, you know, California, Texas, Florida, Ohio, to name a few. And we're currently working with seven insurance companies, including one top 10 um, and an additional top 10 coming on board soon. So we've made some, yeah, some great inroads here in the US as well. So obviously a great use case. Uh, clear, there's clearly demand for solving this problem. How do you uh, find local contractors? Yes, well, we, um, we're very particular about the type of contractor that we're getting on board. So the industry traditionally, um, there's big uh, national franchises um, and there's a number of contractors that everybody uses. <laughs> we're keen to identify local remodel contractors usually that have between three and 30 people in their team, kind of a mum and pop shop who are really passionate about customer service and their reputation in their community. And these, these companies are excited about a $2,500 repair. You know, they're not doing it just because they have to and they'd prefer a bigger one. And so what we've really done is we've linked 
you know, their motivation with um, getting this high performance. So our cash flow is really fast to these contractors. So if they get five stars from a customer, they get paid seven days, four stars, 14, three stars, 21. And that's unheard of in the industry. So they feel rewarded, motivated. And um, because of that, we're consistently getting 4.9 stars out of five, which is exactly what the insurance carriers want, right? <laughs> it's a pretty interesting model. You know, if you try to do something like that in banking, when it, you know, it's in respect to interest rates or something like that, you just can't do it because of regulation. So it's good to see that, uh, yeah, you know, at least in the insurance space, it's, it's allowed. So Ben, tactically, how did uh, the Austrade relationship come to be and and you know how did it smooth your entrance into the Australian market? Yes, yeah, so, so Austrade's well known to us. Uh, we've got people uh, with connections into to, to different government uh, departments, but uh, so we we were well aware of their um, their ability to, to to make the right connections. So so for us, what it helps us do is whenever you're looking to go into a new country or a new market, there are many things that you know and there are many things you don't know. Uh, and that you don't know what you don't know is the biggest challenge often. So uh, being able to speak with people at uh, Austrade around what the regulatory framework might be or how it differs from one market to another um, is really useful and really important. But not only that, some more practical things, introductions to lawyers or introductions to um, in, into corporate banks to, get, to be able to get set up and all, all, over, all of those administrative parts, which if you're starting from the UK, especially, which is what eleven thousand miles away, twenty thousand kilometers nearly, um, it's um, it's a lot more difficult with time zones and everything else. Whereas if you've got someone, especially government related, that's able to point you in the right direction uh, and assist with those introductions, it makes it a lot more a lot more seamless. Simone, um, you know, Australia has historically been quite innovative, you know, in respect to some of these fintechs. Obviously, we have uh, a few. Australian companies that have gone global and and done very well. But can you give us a little bit more of a feel for the evolution of the fintech and insurtech markets in Australia that's going on right now and and how that might differentiate from other regions? Yeah, sure. I mean, I'll probably talk more about insurtech, but I'll I'll talk broadly about fintech. So I think um, for Australia, we've we've got this great kind of tech base. Um, So this, you know, it's the third last, the tech sector is the third largest employer. Um, we have a number of those global um, startups like, you know, Atlassian and Canva that have really um, put us on the world map. Um, and there's a lot of that technological readiness. We're quite a mature market. And then combined, as, as Ben had said before, with the, the size of the market, it's a market where you can test. And that's kind of particularly relevant in, in financial services and particularly insurance because it's a market where it's mature, it's regulated, um, it, it has it probably is larger than its size in terms of population. Um, so you can test and pilot um, products and ideas and and adapt um, as they go along. So particularly for insurance with the 15th sort of largest global market, you know, it's a very big catastrophe market. Um, it's, it's quite mature in terms of the take-up of products. Um, so it's an area where people can kind of test and see what works. Um, and then apply that into other other areas. And, um, you know, there, there has been obviously issues in the past in Australia with, um, you know, getting venture capital investment if you're a founder there and so forth. Do you find that those things are opening up a little bit in Australia? Yeah, look, they are. I mean, I think it depends very much on your stage and phase. Um, I think probably for the early stage, and we're seeing, you know, quite a lot of growth in the 
the, you know, new founders coming in. And I think that's always a challenge because, you know, financial services and insurance um, are more niche. Um, so you know, people understanding your product and then being sort of clear on where that global reach is is, is probably harder than if you're um, coming from another region in terms of um, time zone and just pure distance. Um, I think the digital, um, everything moving digital th through COVID has actually been great for many of our businesses um, because, you know, they're on the same sort of level playing field with everyone else and they didn't have that separation. No, absolutely. Well, but uh, having said that, you know, um, you know, I, th I think fintech would have been considered niche, but um, now one in five investments globally in, in the venture capital space has been in fintech in the last uh, two years. So it's certainly moved into prime time. Um, ben, have you, you got something to add? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so just to, to add to um, what Simone was saying there, that, that there's a couple of areas of capital raising I think that are important to look at when you consider Australia. One is the local market as well. So the capital market here, investing into businesses that are looking to grow. Um, they often need to see the ability to expand beyond the shores of Australia. The, the market is great for a certain size and you can certainly show scale and the hockey sticks and everything that investors look to see. Uh, but with 20 million population, there's, a, there's there's actually an important consideration here as to how you grow beyond that. That's not to say that you can't just live in Australia and work in Australia on that size, but, but going beyond that is often what some investors are looking to see. So that's local investment into businesses here. Uh, and I think with that ability to expand internationally uh, and the ongoing digitization of um, all things tech and consumer, um, I think the overseas capital markets are also now starting to look into Australia because of the innovation that's being um, being created here, uh, because it is now much more of a, an accessible um, technology that you can you can lay across the world. So I think I think the world is getting smaller in that sense, and that's that's assisting Australia, especially in that investment scene as well. Can you talk, uh, Ben, a little bit more about the regulatory framework for Rails Bank coming into Australia? Uh, yeah, particularly very, with the licensing process and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. I think I mentioned earlier that, that that when you start off, you don't know what you don't know. So understanding what that framework looks like and and being able to map, I guess, the capabilities, the product, the tech, uh, and everything it is that we've built um, uh, across uh, the globe, and how that fits into the framework here is an important consideration. So um, our team spoke with. Uh, local lawyers and uh, and uh, and got an understanding of the regulatory framework. Uh, we were then handheld to a certain degree as to how we go about making the connections to ASIC to, to make the necessarily necessary applications. And 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 at that point, obviously, it's all down to us and the application and our credibility to be able to get the license. So it was a pretty smooth process overall. I mean, any any form of license attainment is is never a short or a quick thing, but uh, but we got it in a time frame that we were expecting. We were very pleased when it came through earlier this year. So, um, Christy, when we talk about this, it appears like you're really sort of creating a marketplace for insurers and these, you know, repairers or, you know, contractors to come together. Um, you know, in, in respect to the core technology that, that you've got there, is there anything, um, you know, particularly special that you've invested in from a technology perspective? Yes. Yeah, so, Brett, as you can imagine, working in anywhere in fintech, that insurance is very risk adverse and IT security is very high and scalability is really important. So, you know, an MVP for Handy was over a million dollars before we even went live. So we have a very scalable backend. So we, our um, language is Elixir. We're all AWS. Um, and our product has three interfaces. 
So the insurance company can see what's happening in the claim, like the adjusters in the call centre. The homeowner has an end-to-end digital experience right from when they make a claim through to when the repairs are completed and they get to rate their contractor. And then the contractor uses Handy on site to be able to inspect the claim, to communicate with the insured and their adjuster. And that transparency just really streamlines the whole claim. Um, Some of the interesting things about that we've started to identify and incorporate is other solutions that can then fit into our marketplace. And a really simple example of that is we've integrated with Stripe to enable the homeowner to pay their deductible or excess online through our product. Um, So traditionally, they would have paid their excess to the contractor, um, but this way we've actually 50% of the customers are now paying online through that embedded um, finance opportunity. So you've brought Stripe into it, you've brought the claim process from the insurers into it. Do you run the claim process through your engine or are you just using an API into the insurer? So great question. So during a pilot, we um, insurance companies can use our platform standalone. And then when they move from pilot into contract, so they've tested, you know, our services that really stoke for what we're delivering, we can then integrate with their claim system. So we've been approved as a Guidewire partner. So Guidewire is the biggest claim system that the insurance companies use. And what that will mean is um, we can be assigned right at first notification of loss by automatically rather than by a human. And then also the adjuster won't need to swivel chairs. You know, they'll just have one screen and see handy inside of Guidewire. And I'm assuming this works on mobile as well as on desktop and stuff like that. Oh, yes, Brett, but um, oh, look, homeowners don't want to download an app for a claim. You know, they certainly right. want to. So everything is um, linked to email or whatever communication channel the uh, homeowner desires. But, yes, of course, rendered off for all the different devices. So um, where do you see this going, you know, in terms of obviously you're going to incorporate more states and hopefully more insurers, but from a technology perspective, do you see opportunities down the line where you could use technology to even streamline the process further? Oh, absolutely. So, look, um, Nirvana for the insurance companies and certainly for the homeowners is imagine you're a homeowner and you go to the website of your insurance company, you start to make a property claim and behind the scenes you go through Guidewire, their claim system, you then end up in handy, but you're none the wiser. You're then just matched with a contractor, you know, within minutes. And then that contractor comes out to your property. You're able to select them. They undertake repairs and there's no headache. And ideally, you don't even have to talk to your insurance company. Yeah. Um, so there's no waiting. And so, you know, that's not that far away. You know, that vision is definitely achievable. Um, and I think it's about, you know, the ecosystem coming together. So, you know, we don't profess to be a claim system or even estimating software, you know, or, you know, there are other solutions out there in the insure tech space that could really plug into, you know, our workflow and our marketplace to continue to enhance and evolve that to really continue to streamline and automate the process. Yeah, I mean, one of the advances we've seen more recently, particularly in auto claims, but I'm sure it 
must uh, you know happen in, in in the real estate, the residential property stuff is is image recognition. So when you look at, um, you know, estimates, instead of, you know, an an assessor coming out and taking photographs and doing all of that stuff, you know, we're we're getting a high degree of accuracy with image recognition um, today. Are you guys using anything like that? Great question. So one of our key integrations that's planned and coming up is with our our friends at Hoster Labs uh, who do exactly that um, in the claim space. And not only do they turn that those images into um, schematics and room designs and measurements, they can also identify the materials used in the room. So that then further helps um, the creation of the estimate and the scope. Awesome. Um, are you guys raising funding? Because it sounds like you're trying to do things fairly quickly. Yeah, so we uh, our plan for this next 12 months is to really focus on expanding our contractor network across the US and opening up. So with our top 10 carriers, you know, we really want to um, open up those opportunities with them for growth. And then on the development side, it's really around those key integrations that I've spoken about already. Um, and so, yes, we are heading into our Series A. So we are talking awesome. to investors right now and, um, yeah, conversation's going very well. So. Well, you've certainly there. got you've certainly got more than enough traction to fund a A series from from the sounds of it. So, Simone, just tell us about some of the tech capability in Australia to support fintech. Uh, yeah, it's really broad. Uh, we have, um, I guess, a number of members that are focused on you know insurance systems that are, are cloud based and much more flexible and modern, and they support insurers and brokers and and those in the distribution chain. We have a lot of um, members that are looking and using AI, so using visual or voice um, and being able to focus on how do they um, take those solutions, that capability and and slot into the insurance process, which is, you know, usually, you know, multiple players, um, multiple kind of handoffs and ways to to really streamline that and, and particularly around um, not having, you know, so much of a physical presence, so being able to do remote assessing, using visual imagery, being able to assess risks um, through satellite-type imagery. So there's really sort awesome. of an insure tech solution for every sort of bit of the insurance value chain, and, and they're really focused on really reducing that friction um, and providing a better customer experience for, you know, the insurer and then ultimately for their customer as well. And, Ben, um, you know, what do you think the opportunities for the Australian market are, you know, that you've seen? Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think there are numerous studies now that have been done that kind of talk to the to the size of the overall embedded finance market. I think that the, the one number that sticks in everyone's mind is $7.2 trillion by 2030. That's less than 10 years away. Uh, and for size comparison, the, the top 30 global banks and in insurance currently represent $3.6 trillion. So in terms of overall market size and opportunity, it's significant. Um, I think if you look at breaking it down a little bit further, some of the some of the newer trends that have been talked about, um, banking as a service, as a, as a concept, is pretty new in Australia. Um, we were fortunate and uh, well positioned to be able to launch the first banking as a service customer in, in, in the country uh, and followed that closely with another first, which was the first uh, debit card attached to an embedded deposit account. Um, so with all these firsts going on, I think the the, the opportunity is, is significant going forward. Uh, a recent survey suggests that um, 
more than 80% of regulated financial services providers expect BAS market to grow in Australia. Um, of these, 30% expected to grow more than 50% over the next five years. And that's just the regulated financial service players. If you then look at the distributors, which are retailers, e-commerce providers, consumer brands, um, they're expecting growth to exceed 70% year over year for the next three years. So whichever way you look at it and wherever you're looking at it from, I think everyone's starting to, 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 to see the power of really embedding the, the, the finance capability or the finance um, service at the point that it's needed by the Absolutely. user. Absolutely. No, I think, um, yeah, no, I don't think there's any argument that that embedded finance piece is uh, key. We're moving from a world of products to experiences for financial services. That's the key shift. So for those of you who want to learn more about InsureTech Australia, please visit insuretechaustralia.org. If you're interested in Australia and the opportunities in fintech, you can check out the Australian Trade and Investment Commission at austrade.gov.au forward slash fintech. They focus on things like providing market profiles and insights. And as you've heard on this podcast today, they're also active in providing instructions for companies looking to invest in, in Australia, as well as helping Australian companies move offshore. Ben, uh, where can people find out more about uh, what Rails Bank is doing in the Australian market? Uh, yeah, so the, so the best bet is to connect to any of our team, but the first place to go to is uh, our website, www.railsbank.com. Uh, you can look myself up on uh, on LinkedIn and uh, I can connect you to the right people. So yeah, we'd look forward to hearing from anyone. How can people find out more about Handy and get in touch with you? Yes, so our website is very sim simple. It's just handy.com. That it is H A N double D double I dot com. Got to be groovy these days, Brett. <laughs> Great. And uh, yourself, you on LinkedIn, Twitter. What, what's the easiest way to? Yes, to LinkedIn. To absolutely, you'll okay. find me on LinkedIn, and I'm quick to respond. So yes, welcome, welcome any reach outs for sure. Fantastic. Well, thank you for joining us on Breaking Banks today. Hello, listeners. I'm Brett King, the host of Breaking Banks. Together, myself and Dr. Richard Petty have recently released our latest best-selling book, The Rise of Techno-Socialism. We look at how inequality, artificial intelligence, and climate change are going to shape our world moving forward. During the pandemic, the wealth of the world's billionaires ballooned. The richest 1% added $1.6 trillion to their wealth, meaning that they own more wealth than the bottom 90% of Americans today. Unemployment skyrocketed during the pandemic, but artificial intelligence could disrupt up to 80% of the jobs today. These new industries we are creating will face labor shortages because we aren't training our students with the right skills. By 2050, we'll need to produce 70% more food to feed the 9 billion inhabitants of the planet, but we lost 40% of our farmland to erosion and pollution in the last 50 years. By 2050, 570 global cities face inundation from sea rise. Miami, Guangzhou, New York, Calcutta and Shanghai are just the top five cities. If you want to know more about the solutions to these problems, check out The Rise of Techno-Socialism, our latest best-selling book. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or go to riseoftechnosocialism.com to find out more. Welcome to the future. Welcome back to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech 
podcast. In fact, uh, recent uh, um, research uh, by Spark Toro shows that Breaking Banks has 22% of the total fintech uh, podcast listening audience. That's uh, that's pretty cool. But um, we're, we're, we've just finished our ninth year, going into our 10th year now for Breaking Banks. One of the guests that appeared frequently on Breaking Banks in the early days, even hosting many shows, is a good friend of mine. Uh, Chris Skinner. Chris, welcome back to the show after a bit of a hiatus, but uh, welcome back. Hello, Brett the King. Now you're uh, you're hanging out in Europe. Uh, you're you're in Poland right now. Um, you know what is the feel in Poland in respect to sort of the Ukrainian? Before we get into your new book, um, to the Ukrainian Russian situation, how does it feel being so close to that? Well, there's a whole raft of angles in that. Um, if you actually look at the history of Russia, you can understand a lot more about the relationship with Ukraine and why, to a certain extent, the actions could be justified. But the way in which they're doing the special military operation is um, a war crime. And so that's really an, a huge issue. Um, Poland saw um, over three million Ukrainians come into the country in just over a month um, when the war started. And when you're talking about a country with 39 million people, that's suddenly 42 million people. And, you know, I blogged and I shared blogs from people from Ukraine and Russia in fintech on the financer.com. You can find out more there about what's happening. To a large extent, if I'm honest, I think from the the day-to-day life view, it's kind of a little bit like all of us have been for the past two years in the pandemic, locked in and using Wi-Fi. Um, but obviously, the difference is you might have a bomb hit your house the next minute. Yeah, that that does make it a little different. So, so you've got this new book out. Um, is it book number eleven? I'm I'm trying to keep up. Uh, Seventeen or twenty-two, depending on how. Well, you depending. Count. Right. Okay. Well, I'm way off then, because you've also got the children's <laughs> book series right now, which is doing. Incredibly- if you include the children's books, it's, it's, it's twenty-two. But right. This, this so, is number seventeen business book. There you go. So it's called Doing yeah. Good. Sorry, well, digital, I always say digital for good. And in the business books, it's kind of like um, only six that are worth reading. So you, you can ignore eleven. Right. <laughs> okay. There you go. So um, it's uh, stand for something or you will fail is the subtitle. A digital no, for good. Stand for something or you will fall. Or you will fall. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to get you Stand for falling down. Yeah. Um, well. Um, or you and you'll fail as well, right? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, but uh, um, so what? What um, inspired this book? Because you know, obviously, you've been doing more around digital impact. Uh, you did the digital human book. Uh, you know, you, obviously, you've been sp- speaking about um, you know digital bank. Um, you know, and, and the impact of digital on the financial services space. And there's some of that in this book, although it it, it does tend to have a, a broader scope. Um, you know, speaking about what good the industry more broadly can do, but then, um, you know, um, other elements of, of sort of the philo- philosophy of humanity. But what, what inspired you to go down this path? A number of points in, in, you know, working in financial services and technology. I guess one was when Lord Adair Turner, who was the head of the financial regulator in Britain when the financial crisis hit in 2008, said that a lot of what banks do is socially useless right? and they'd lost their moral compass. And that caused a big outcry. But when you look back at the last 15 years, 
yeah, you, you can see that's exactly right. That's what happened. And we've been sopping up that mess during the last decade. Um, a second thing was when I went to visit uh, Ant Financial in Hongzhou, China, um, part of the Alibaba family. And there was a poster on the wall of Jack Ma. And the slogan was, do good for society and good for the planet. And that kind of was a real light bulb moment because I was surprised to see that message in the Chinese fintech company. And then I realized that an awful lot of the fintechs that you and I know and you've interviewed on your show um, have very young visionary people who have a passion for making the world a better place as part of their purpose. And purpose became a big theme, um, particularly over the past um, three or four years uh, culminating maybe in the final piece in the book that's a, a, an angle around stakeholder capitalism, which Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, delivered as a campaign for the businesses of America in November 2019. Um, talking about stakeholder capitalism is now replacing shareholder capitalism. So all those things were bubbling together and emerged into the themes in the book. Nice. I mean, you know, um, it's interesting to hear Elon Musk talk about his businesses. Um, you know, when he's asked about a philanthropy, he says that his businesses are philanthropic in terms of human future, um, which I think is, you know, also something we're going to see more, particularly as, you know, we've, we've got this broad inequality, um, but we've also got um, the, a situation where, um, you know, clearly the impact of artificial intelligence and, and um, you know, uh, climate change in general is going to force us to look more collectively at the needs of the human species over the needs of individual you know, corporations or markets as in the way that we've traditionally looked at them in a capitalist sense. Um, so now, here's um, a funny thing, which is yeah. recently the Standard & Poor's ESG 300, which um, analyzes co companies' behaviors based on their environmental, social, and governance activities, dropped Tesla from the list because they said that Tesla, from a social and governance viewpoint, is behaving badly. Um, and Elon Musk said that they've lost their integrity. But when you look under the hood, there's actually quite a lot of social and governance abuses, racial discrimination, et cetera, within Tesla right. that's been kind of proven and supported. Uh, there's they put definitely some, mobile some, on there. some HR issues there, yeah. Yeah, but it's quite interesting that you know who appears on that list and who doesn't. And in the banking industry, Wells Fargo dropped off that list. Um, and yet the other big American banks are on there. And I could question why are they on there when they're investing in fossil fuel projects and new fossil fuel projects in yeah. particular. So th this is a central theme of, of the book, um, you know, doing good. Um, you know, it's called Digital for Good, obviously, the book. Um, but in terms of that social contract that that banks have with um, you know, individual account holders and society in general. There were some, uh, you know, some real um, gems in the book. Um, one of the things, uh, you know, I liked is that there were, um, you know, uh, players in the space articulating this change. So obviously you had 
um, people like Tom Blomfield from um, uh, Monzo talking about how they had designed certain elements of their bank account to do good for people. One uh, I remember off, offhand from reading was a case about an individual who had uh, problems with gambling. So having um, the gambling block put on his card meant that he was able to uh, become debt-free, get rid of his gambling debts after a few years. Um, but this is something that, again, from the core ecosystem of what banks provide to customers, this is not currently a driver of core business activity. But the pandemic seems to have shifted some of that because as, we, as we're digitizing banking, we're also looking at more tools to help people manage their money more effectively. Um, so, you know, give us a bit of a viewpoint in terms of, from a tactical perspective, how do you think expectations are going to change around what banks provide their customers in respect to, you know, doing the right thing for customers? First, touching on the people I handpicked to contribute to the book, which is a mixture of interviews, their own opinions and chapters, and my opinions and views. Um, I wanted to get it in the round. So, you know, there's people from every continent talking about how they view um, the way in which technology and finance. Yeah, and, and, and except the Arctic Circle, although the, the Baltics um, are kind of included. Um, but the five main continents, where there's a human activity rather than um, polar bears and, and penguins. Um, and I wanted to get it in the round so everyone could give a view around what's happening in their view of the world um, and their part of the world. Um, I think a second, because I didn't want it to be Chris Skinner saying, you know, we've got to use technology and finance to do good. So then it sounds like I'm on you know, my um, parapet shouting at everyone, you've got to change. It's everybody handpicked to give their views including people like the former head of SWIFT. Um, and one of the ones I was intrigued by is not just Tom, who founded Monzo, but, for example, Adrian Gore, who founded Discovery Group out of South Africa, who um, made it very specific that from day one, and it's a 25-, 26-year-old company, they had to use wealth for health or create health through right. wealth. And they've done some really interesting things around those themes. So. I think that was part of it. It's really about how do you get in the round a lot of people um, talking about how can we use digital and financial services to create a better world. And then within that, um, it kind of became an interesting area around um, old and new companies. So a lot of the new companies are looking at technology and digitalization for doing things that we've never been able to do before, such as the example you gave of blocking gambling. Uh, in the Monzo app, which has now been copied by quite a few other banks in the UK. They had another, which was um, how can you give homeless people financial services and bank accounts? Because they don't, when have, they don't have an address, yeah. They don't have an address, but you have an address, I have an address. So right. if that homeless individual has someone like you or I willing to be their guardian, so to speak, on the account with our address, then they can have an account. So there's ways and means around these things. And I think that's a really interesting thing around something I say quite often to fintech firms, and when I look at fintech firms, that they're actually creating services that never could have been created before if you hadn't got the internet and the 5G network that we have today in cloud computing. Um, for a traditional bank, and this is the third part, uh, 
they really, when you talk about ESG, think of it much more from a commercial banking and corporate view. Um, and they're seeing a squeeze on two sides in that area. One is from the activist consumers like Extinction Rebellion, but equally from the activist investors. And um, I've got a couple of investment companies and venture capitalist funds talking, again, from their standpoint around how they see things, like Wayne Watchell, who was one of the creators of sustainable investing um, in the Canadian company Genus. Uh, and I found it just really interesting, all the different angles. And I guess it's summarized quite well by um, Gugo Stocker, who's the co-founder of Banco Oriental in Brazil, in Brazil. He said, what if a bank is just a bunch of algorithms? How does that change the world? And when you integrate those algorithms with farm tech, uh, agri-tech, health tech, you know, all the other techs, then th that's where digital can really transform our future. Now, on the ESG side of things, um, and again, you know, you've been you've been talking about that that a lot lately, um, you know, in in your social media and and in, you know, basically uh, in your platform. Um, but clearly, there there is more emphasis on this and the need to be good corporate citizens, whether it is banks or or someone else. And we've had some of these banks uh, called out recently. Extinction Rebellion, who you just mentioned, they've been organising protests, particularly in the UK, at the front of uh, HSBC and Barclays with these naked naked protesters and so forth. Um, but do you see a sort of sea change there, particularly as climate um, impact um, gets more uh, severe. Um, you know, what do you think the, um, you know, the pushback will be or, 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 you know, or what is likely to be the social response to banks and the roles they've played historically in, um, you know, supporting fossil fuels and, um, you know, the, the impact to the planet? So my motivation in bringing in ESG is actually much more around biodiversity and the loss of you know, our colleagues on Earth who are animals and insects and whales and fish. The so, other species that share the planet with us, yeah. Yeah, and you know, over half of them have disappeared in the last 30 years, which is disturbing me because of the decimation of their habitats. Um, and in fact, I did invite quite a few climate deniers to contribute to the book. Um, and one of the key people I tried to get involved said, no, I don't want to be, write a chapter or be involved in your book because you're pushing um, Extinction Rebellion and the Environmental Climate Emergency uh, emergency Agenda. I said, I'm not. I'm pushing an agenda of we can use digital for change to make the world better. And it's interesting talking to those guys, but I think a lot of it comes down to, and I've discovered since, that the statistics a lot of climate deniers quote are coming from studies that are sponsored by the fossil fuel firms. So there's a kind of little bias in there. And equally within the banks, a lot of what they say above the parapets in their PR and marketing is nothing like what they're actually doing beneath within the organization. So above the headlines are, we are doing green in the, organiz in the organization itself. They don't care at all. In fact, it's interesting, Stuart Kirk, who's the head of responsible investing for HSBC, uh, was called out at an FD conference where he was speaking about why we don't need to care about the, the climate emergency. And he said a number of key quotes, but my favorite one was, 
as a bank, our average loan is six years. We don't care what happens to Earth in the seventh year. And that is kind of worrying. You know, I, I um, had a discussion recently with Insurer about this, and I, I said, um, you know, like, isn't the global insurance industry going to collapse when climate happens? And he says, no, no, we're just going to refuse to stop insuring things that are at risk from climate, you know. But it's like, so, you know, you've got all these exposed assets. It's not exactly a um, a moral position to take anyway. Um there's a lot of talk in the book about the impact of the pandemic. Obviously, this was written at a time, um, you know, when uh, people's memories were still fresh in respect to this. Um, but looking out over the next um, 10 or 20 years with the digital transformation we've seen uh, that accelerated during the pandemic, what what um, bets do people make in the book about how technology is going to change the nature of banking? So the book ends with a view out to 2050 because um, there has to be a what solutions and what's next view of the world in any recent book about what's happening right now. Um, I think a lot of people are saying that the pandemic drove us to be digital and that we all had to work from home use cloud computing, transform our business models so that people could um, be out of office. Um, and as you can see right now in 2022, there's kind of a move to say, come back into the office. We want you back. And it's like this is, a, this, is a, this is from commercial real estate operators. <laughs> yeah, yeah but... it's kind of, it's interesting to watch the to and fro between people because it's not just commercial real estate, but if people don't go into the office, then the, you know, the bars and the restaurants and the right, baristas, right, I get that. Yeah, but they don't get any work. Um, so, but if I look 20 years out, and this is the sense I got from the book, we're going to be in a world where um, customers might as well be on Mars, head office on the moon, um, and staff um, somewhere on planet Earth. You know, that's the business model that is truly digital that needs to be built. And I've said this for years, as you know which is that it has to be an open API network that enables people to uh, connect through omni-access. I, you know, as again, you'll know, I always say never mention omni-channel because I hate the word, um, channel in particular. It's a, bad, but, it's a bad description of what we're talking about these days, particularly as we move forward, because it's not about omni-channel, like just a choice, you now have to start thinking about the design of banking embedded in the world more effectively. So it's, you know, it, um, you know, right channeling experiences and things like that are all part of it. Yeah, and what's happening that's key in banking is the fintech world is being born digital and the banks have been born physical. Um, oh, and okay. now they're hundreds of years old and uh, in fact, I um, enjoyed a conference the other day, one of my first you know, live conferences since the pandemic ended or is ending, uh, where I could talk about Bankenstein, which is, you know, the old banks were born physical 100 years ago, and now they're only kept alive because they're all dead parts through injecting electricity <laughs> up the backside and dressing them up in a nice T-shirt and jeans so that they look cool. Um, you know, that's the bit that's going to be interesting 10, 20 years out, which is, how many big old banks get bought by new banks um, that are fit and born digital 
um, and they buy them not for the bank, but for the bank's customer base. Uh, you know, it, it, uh, 10 years ago, that statement would have been considered ridiculous. But given that we've already seen that with Gojek buying, you know, a large share of a bank in Indonesia and and, and others, um, you know, New Bank now being the largest bank in Latin America and so forth, it's not such a silly idea after all. Um, so, Chris, I know we've only got a few minutes left, but, I, um, you know, tell me about the mission for for doing good more broadly in society and if if you had unlimited resources um based on what you've learned out of this process of writing the new, new book digital for good you know what wh- what would be your approach to addressing some of the stickiest problems in human society and bringing us together to solve these problems i think the biggest issue is um our use of energy on our planet and we need to move to renewable energy and away from fossil fuel energy. We need to um, stop fracking the planet, basically. Uh, and that was fracking, just to be clear. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, since the Paris Accord of 2015, the top 60 biggest banks in the world have invested $4.6 trillion into fossil fuel firms. That's crazy. Through, through end of 20, 2021. Um, and the clear message coming to me through this project is no new fossil fuel loans or investments. Existing ones, fine. No new ones. And for the existing ones, they need to be educated and supported to change. And the best example of that is when Anna Botan was being interviewed on Bloomberg um, about a year ago. Anna, Anna is the executive chair of Santander. And um, she said, we are one of the biggest banks in Poland, which is where I'm living. And Poland, as I know, is completely dedicated to the platform of coal. And all our energy comes from coal. We're the biggest polluted country in Europe. Um, uh, But you can't switch that off tonight. (laughs) Because if you did that, Poland wouldn't exist tomorrow. You've got to say, okay, if you've got to... You can switch it off in 10 years if you commit to it. Well, that's the key, which is setting targets that are believed real and followed through and implemented, and not just greenwashing where you say something for marketing and then don't actually deliver it when you get into the connection with business. Yeah, a lot of people don't realise that um, you know the United States spends more on fossil fuel subsidies annually than their entire defence budget. Over $650 billion a year goes into subsidizing fossil fuels. Um, you know, it's a it, you know, the renewables get a fraction of that in terms of subsidies. So this concept that you new renewables are only able to survive because of um, you know, subsidies, it's it's a it, it, it's but it's propaganda, the, right? The UK Chancellor just came out um in uh end of May saying that if you're a fossil fuel firm. For every pound you invest, you get 91% tax relief. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah I mean, this is the system we have to fix. So that that would be the primary thing you'd tackle. What about um, what about consensus what, building? What, what, sorry, how how do you think? That one. Sorry, the, yeah, go ahead. There's, there's important that point there, which also we didn't explore enough in the book, but I, it's coming through to me since the book was finished, which is banks say governments have to tell us what to do. And if they regulate it, we'll do it. And governments say, we need banks to have a stable economy that's growing. 
And so we won't stop them doing activities that might damage the economy. That's a lose-lose. We, we need yeah, to but that, you know, Well, you know, if the economy can't sustain the planet, if it can't look after the needs of the citizens, it's functionally a failure. And that's the yeah. that's the point that humanity has to come I, to. I'll ask you a question because hearing your accent, you know, the Australian government with the Great Barrier Reef. What, I know it's ridiculous, there? man. No, it's it's total BS. Um, you know, I, I mean, it, it it provides billions of dollars dollars of tourist dollars and things like that, and yet politicians, you know, who get a check written from the coal industry, are prepared just to to like close their eyes to that problem. It, no, it's 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 it, it will be seen as potentially the greatest natural disaster in Australian you know history, um, the death of the Great Barrier Reef, and and it is avoidable, um, but uh, yeah, we. Yeah, but but how do we build consensus when you've got this sort of left versus right, progressives versus conservative, you know, and and um, you know people still arguing that climate change isn't real and so forth. But over the, those next couple of decades, how do you build consensus so society is more focused on on the needs of the planet and the needs of the community? Well, I'm not sure we can. It's kind of a bit like the NRA debate in the USA, particularly after the terrible Texan elementary school shootings um, in, in, the, in May. Yeah. And what I'd say is um, what's going to happen is the activist, consumer and investor will get more and more healthy. And eventually it will move from um, activism without harm to activism that does harm. And that's a concern I have, to be honest, that right now I have great empathy with Extinction Rebellion because their view of the world is if we mess up your morning driving into work or getting on a flight or we break the windows of a bank, then whatever, it's justified. You know, It's justified if I break a window to get into your house to rescue your child if there's yeah. a fire in your house. So if I break the windows of a bank, it's justified. And there's an interesting debate around this. So, um, and again, at the start of every month, Gail from Extinction Rebellion, I give, I give her a voice on my blog for that reason because I think she's got great depth and it's very passionate. She's willing to go to jail over these things. So it's more um, about it's it's more about holding people that aren't doing good things accountable, right? And and shining a light that's a, yeah. an active light so people can see it. But my, my worry is, you know, that from today breaking a window or um, you know, gluing yourself to a building or handcuffing yourself to um, you know, a thing, a bridge, whatever, will become something more active um, and extreme. Yeah, I agree. Well, listen, it's been great to have you back on the show, dude. We we need to do it more often. Maybe you and I can get back in the co-hosting chair together at some point in the future. But for now, um, how do people find out about the book, uh, Digital for Good, Stand for Something or You Will Fall? by Chris Skinner and a host of others. Um, where can people get a copy of the book or find out more about yourself? It's on all good bookstores. Uh, as you know, thefinancer.com is my main place, which is where I blog every single day. Um, but also um, thefintechguy.com is, uh, you know, is another of my aliases. And if you find those, you'll get the Easter eggs. Fantastic. So the financer is uh, the financer is spelt with an S. That's F I N A N S E R dot com. Uh, check it out. And again, go to Amazon or wherever good books are sold to check out Digital for Good by Chris Skinner. Chris, thanks for being back on the show. Cheers, Mr. King. Good to Take see you. Take care. Absolutely. 
That's it for another week of the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. This episode was produced by our US-based production team, including producer Lisbeth Severins, audio engineer Kevin Hersham, with social media support from Carlo Navarra and Sylvie Johnson. If you like this episode, don't forget to tweet it out or post it on your favorite social media. Or leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever it is that you listen to our show. Those actions help other people find our podcast, and in return, that helps us build an audience that can be supported by sponsorship so we can continue to provide you with our award-winning content every week. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you on Breaking Banks next week.